Uh, would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to that text? That's John chapter 11. And uh, if you are new around here, we have been in this study of John's Gospel for several months now. Uh, we have a few uh, journals, just a couple left back here on the table. Uh, if you want to take some notes this morning, we have some Gospel of John journals over there. So feel free to just hop up and grab one of those this morning. Thank you, Taylor, for reading all of that for us. So as some of you guys know, uh, I'm currently working on a doctorate in counseling, and so several times a year I have to travel to campus for seminars, and the last time we were on campus was back in July, and I was talking to another guy who's in my cohort uh, who runs a counseling center in Auburn, Alabama, and I was just curious, I, I asked him, do you guys get a lot of students from the university at the counseling center? And his response kind of surprised me. He said, oh, yeah, that's our primary clientele. Um, and I said, is that because their football team's so terrible? They just need a lot of counseling? Um, no, 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 no. He was, he was dead serious. He goes, no, the cool thing at Auburn right now is to have your therapist. Now, it's been a minute since I was in college, but I don't remember anybody who, like, had a therapist. And if they did, they certainly didn't talk about it at all. And yet, I think probably most of us are aware of the fact that the cultural landscape around mental health has changed a great deal here in America over the last 10, 20 years, um, certainly since I was in college. And it's changed in both positive ways and in negative ways. Uh, to the positive, there seems to be less stigma around things like going to counseling. And there seems to be less cultural shame around like admitting to mental health challenges. But to the negative, by every measurable statistic, we are more anxious and more depressed than we have ever been. I read a statistic this week from the, word, uh, the World Health Organization that said that uh, during COVID, instances of anxiety and depression had increased by 25% worldwide. Worldwide, so that's millions of people. Like, we saw this dramatic uptick in anxiety and depression just from COVID alone, but, but we were already like very obviously trending in that direction. And so somehow we are the wealthiest, most comfortable nation that has ever existed, but we are also increasingly miserable. Last week we looked at the end of John chapter 10, and we saw Jesus exhibit what we called non-anxiety. In other words, in his interactions with the Jews, which were often heated, he was curiously and conspicuously unworried and unfrazzled. And the picture that John has been painting for us throughout this gospel is that Jesus's non-anxiety that it's rooted in his union with the Father. That Jesus is not alone, he's not on his own, he's not by himself, but that he is always in union with God. And he has said on multiple occasions, I only do what I see the Father doing. 
And so John has been like demonstrating for us how Jesus is in the midst of all of the turmoil that his words and his miracles create, that, that Jesus is at peace in the midst of it. And as he said last week in chapter 10, that he and the Father are one. And this manifests in Jesus being able to do what the Father tells him to do, no matter what the situation is around him, no matter what kind of issues it creates for people, no matter what kind of anxiety it creates for people, like the Jews in our text today in John 11 saying, oh no, the more people that are following him as Messiah, like the more people that are going out to him, the more likely it is that the Romans are going to come in and they're going to take everything away from us. They're going to take our nation away from us. So Jesus' restorative action and Jesus' Jesus' teaching is creating this heightened anxiety among the Jews that all of their power is going to be taken away, right? And that their, their world as they know it is going to cease to exist. Already, people have tried to stone Jesus at least twice. And yet, somehow, he is not like some kind of a desperate salesman. Right? He, he doesn't seem to be desperately presenting his gospel truth to people and seeking to draw them in at all costs. Instead, rooted in God's sovereignty, he seems abundantly comfortable with the concept that his sheep hear his voice and follow him and that some people are not his sheep. What he said last week, what we saw is that Jesus wants to draw us into that same kind of union. Later in John, he will pray that his followers would be united, that we would be one as he and the Father are one. And we do that by becoming one with him, by entering into this relationship with Christ that changes our very being. And that when we are one with him, we also become one with each other. And as a result, our anxiety dissipates. That is why Jesus says his burden is light. That's why he tells us in Matthew's gospel not to worry about tomorrow or not to worry about what we're going to eat or what we're going to wear. Because if we have God, we have everything. As he said, he is the door of the sheep. If we want God, if we want everything, if we want this peace he's offering, we have to go through him. There is no other way. Now, when we start talking about anxiety and depression and mental health and all those kinds of things, the word that inevitably gets thrown around is the word trauma. Undoubtedly, you have heard this word more and more. It is somewhat common now to hear people mention things like their childhood trauma. People are much more aware and open about those things than maybe they've ever been. Uh, today, though, uh, trauma gets defined um, as basically anything that is not nurturing, Anything that's not nurturing. So it's this incredibly broad spectrum. By those standards, if I didn't get picked for the football team in seventh grade and I felt left out, that's trauma, potentially. Uh, or if I got robbed at gunpoint at some point, uh, that's trauma, potentially, to me. Or if I got my arm caught in a wood chipper, 
that's potentially trauma. So, so like it's this incredibly broad spectrum. And to be fair, trauma is technically my emotional response to an event. Right? It's, it's how I respond to something, especially something that's negative. But nevertheless, we have increasingly started to use that word not only for the emotional response to an event, but for the event itself. I have a friend who's on, or uh, was, on the board of directors for a nonprofit, an old nonprofit that had been around for decades. And yet they had an executive director that squandered a bunch of their money, and they eventually kind of got to the point where they, they just had to shut down the whole thing. And it was up to this board of directors to, to basically shutter this organization that had been doing good stuff for decades. And my, my friend said to me, it, it was a trauma. Like, like the event itself was a trauma. So it's an expansive spectrum. But the Bible uses a slightly different word for this, and it is the word suffering. And here's the deal with suffering. It's the same with trauma. No one is free from it. No one is free from it, including Jesus. Today we're looking at chapter 11 of John. Um, we're not going to walk through this chapter line by line, but I, I do want us to consider two primary truths that we see here today. Two primary truths. The first is this. God has purposes for our suffering. God has purposes for our suffering. Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus' illness is, quote, for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So his death here is not random. It is not purposeless. Instead, God has intentions. But then I really want to zoom in on what is probably the most famous verse in chapter 11. And I would submit to you one of the strangest verses in the whole Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Which brings us to our second truth. Jesus is our fellow sufferer. Let's begin with this idea that God has purposes for our suffering. Uh, so first of all, it seems clear in our passage today that Jesus let Lazarus die. Doesn't it? Jesus finds out that he is at death's door, and what does he do? He stays put for a few days. Like Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, are right. If Jesus had been there earlier... He certainly could have prevented Lazarus from dying. He certainly could have stopped it from happening. But here again, we see Jesus' non-anxiety. Like, we, we see Jesus who is peaceful and collected in spite of the fact that his friend is close to death. It's rooted in his union with the Father. Jesus is not trying to rush to his side because he knows, and he says as much to his disciples, that this whole episode has purpose. It has purpose. Now, this is not the first time we've seen Jesus say something like this either. Do you remember the last time here in John? It's back in chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples come across a blind man, a man who had been born blind. His disciples ask him, uh, Rabbi, who sinned that this man was born blind? And what did Jesus say to them? No one sinned. But rather, this is so that the works of God might be seen through him. And that's a staggering thing to say, isn't it? This man has been blind from birth so that at some point in time, this guy could walk up out of nowhere and suddenly restore his sight. 
No one sinned, but this was so that the work of God might be seen through him. God had intentions. Paul speaks to these intentions as well in Romans 5 when he says famously, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But then he says not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, he says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, in Paul's calculus, the things that we most need for a flourishing life in this broken world outside of Christ himself are endurance, character and hope. Endurance, character, and hope. And they're things that we find, he says, not by eliminating suffering in our lives, but by embracing suffering in our lives. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know it, it produces endurance, character, and hope. I need the ability to persevere in Christ. And I need him to transform me, to sanctify me, to grow me up into Christ-likeness, to help me be less like myself and more like Jesus. And that produces this hope that this world is not all there is. Right? That the material things or the things I've been pursuing in this life are, are not the end of the road. And that they're not the only things that can bring me significance in this life. But that Christ alone is my hope. That he is my future. Paul says this is what we need and we access it. We find it through suffering. James echoes that same sentiment when he said, Count it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, which is the same thing as endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Paul and James are both saying the same thing. Suffering is producing something in you. And God wants to use it for your good. Now, here's the challenge with suffering. It's the challenge with passages like this. Not only is it suffering, and so by definition, it's very difficult, but we also don't always know what God's intentions are exactly. And, and the reality is, is that when we, when we have a lack of information, we, we tend to do a couple things. One is either we decide that God is unjust and turn away from him, or we try to concoct some stories to help us make sense of our suffering. The famous author and missionary Elizabeth Elliot spoke to this. It's actually a big part of her writing. Uh, her husband, Jim Elliot, uh, and four other missionaries were killed. Uh, in Uganda, I mean, not Uganda, in uh, Ecuador in the 1950s. Uh, they had gone uh, back into the back country, into the bush, uh, to reach a, a tribe of indigenous people who had never uh, been reached with the gospel before, and they were all speared to death. And these five missionaries die. And Elizabeth Elliot wrote later about that situation, about the death of her husband. Here's what she says. This is, a, this is remarkable. She says, we know 
that time and again in the history of the church, the blood of the martyrs has been its seed, right? That the death of Christians has been a catalyst for seeing people come to Christ. That's what she's saying. She says, we're tempted to assume a simple equation here. Five men died. That, that will mean that X number of Warani Christians will come to be. That's the people group they had gone to. So she's saying, we, we put together this equation. Well, these five missionaries died, so surely God's using that somehow to reach this group of people. Here's what she says. Perhaps so, perhaps not. God is God. I dethrone him in my heart if I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my idea of justice. Her husband has died. And she says the natural tendency is to want to put together this story that goes, well, God must have wanted that to happen so that all of these native people can receive Jesus somehow. And she says maybe that will happen, but maybe that won't happen. And either way, he's still God. Isn't that incredible? In the case of Lazarus, his sisters, Mary and Martha, are completely oblivious to what God's larger intentions are. They have no clue what God's up to. And in their minds, God has done the opposite of what is best because their brother is dead. This is a big part of the story of Job as well. All of Job's friends think they know why Job is suffering, and all of them are wrong. Job's wife, right, I think she thinks she knows why he's suffering. Just give it up, Job. She says, curse God and die. And, and Job has this remarkable statement. He says, shall we accept good from God and, and not also bad things? Like, is he not still God? Is he not still over and above all of us? This is at the heart of Paul's talk of suffering producing endurance. James's talk of suffering producing steadfastness. Ultimately, it is our trust of the Lord in the face of suffering, not our fully understanding the point of suffering, that produces character and hope. It is us in union with him. It is us relying on him, even when we don't know what's happening. This is Jesus telling his disciples later in John 16, in the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Bad things are coming, guys. It's going to be a rough road, but you have no reason to worry. Why? Because the resurrection of Christ means that all of this brokenness has been overcome. Take heart. If we turn away from God because we are suffering, then we are not allowing him to be a supreme, sovereign, all-knowing God. We're treating him more like our employee. As long as he performs in the way that we want him to perform, as long as he does the kinds of things that we want, to, want him to do, then we're going to keep him on the payroll. But as soon as he starts to deviate from our script or our agenda, we assume he doesn't have our best interest at heart, and, you know, you're fired. But in that scenario, we are God, not him. 
We're trying to assert our own sovereignty, not submit to his. We're trying to bend him to our own will. You'll hear people say, I I can't believe in a God that would allow dot, 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 fill in the blank, but recognize that the root of the gospel is not only the truth that we all suffer, but that we have an existential need for peace, that we, for all of our intelligence and all of our technological innovation, cannot seem to manufacture for ourselves. And yet God brings us this peace with him through, what? The suffering of his own son. Here's how Tim Keller puts it. He says, according to Christian theology, suffering is not meaningless, neither in general nor in particular instances. For God has purposed to defeat evil so exhaustively on the cross that all the ravages of evil will someday be undone. And we, despite participating in it so deeply, will be saved. God is accomplishing this not in spite of suffering, agony, and loss, but through it. It is through the suffering of God that the suffering of humankind will eventually be overcome and undone. While it is impossible not to wonder whether God could have done this some other way without allowing all the misery and grief, he says the cross assures us that whatever the unfathomable counsels and purposes behind the course of history, they are motivated by love for us and absolute commitment to our joy and glory. And so this brings us to our second truth. Jesus is our fellow sufferer. Here's what's so fascinating about Jesus. He can be completely non-anxious in heated, highly emotional situations, but he is not an emotionless robot, is he? No, he exhibits the full spectrum of human emotions. It can also be easy to think that because God is just above everything and he's able to see the grand plan in ways that we can't, that he's aloof or he's detached from the pain of human suffering. But, but this account here in John 11 shows us that that isn't true either. Look at verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. What is it here that moves Jesus to tears? Well, notice it is not that Lazarus has died. It is not that his friend has passed away. Jesus is not grieving the death of Lazarus. And why would he? He knows what he's about to do. He's already told his disciples what's going to happen. No, Jesus sees the pain and the grief that everyone else is experiencing, and he weeps. Jesus is not emotionless. He is deeply relational. He is not detached. He's grieving over the fact that everyone else is grieving because death, loss, grief, suffering are all things that he has come to put an end to. The very fact that these kinds of things happen is why Jesus has come. This is why I say this is one of the strangest verses in Scripture. Gods don't cry. 
right? If you look over the course of human history, if you look in all of the pagan religions, if you look at other religions in the world today, gods don't cry. Like in the stories of the pagan gods, like they weren't engaged at some kind of emotional level or relational level with human beings. They were fickle gods that you didn't want to run afoul of because they would blight your crops or send flood or famine or that kind of stuff. So the effort was always to try to appease them. Not so for the one true God. Jesus enters into the brokenness of our world, not as a detached, emotionless God, but as a fellow human being, as a fellow sufferer. He grieves over our grief and pain and suffering and takes it all on himself on the cross. And on the cross, he fully, he fully experiences what so many of, of us experience in our suffering. He feels abandoned by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is why Jesus is trustworthy. Because we see his love and care and concern for people so clearly here. He is not pretending that the world isn't broken. He's not above everything. And this event truly sets in motion the chess pieces that lead to him taking on all of our sin and brokenness on the cross. This is the final straw for the Jews as we see kind of at the end of this. So again, not only does he suffer with us, he suffers for us which in God's economy is the pinnacle of love, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. This is what Christ has modeled for us. Don't make the mistake of thinking him untrustworthy or unloving or absent simply because you don't fully understand him. I think this is part of his desire that we would come to him as children, Recognize that just like Mary and Martha, we often do not fully see what God is up to. We don't fully anticipate what God is up to. We often best understand it in retrospect. As Paul says, for we see in a mirror dimly now, but, but, but then down at the consummation of all things when Christ returns, but then we will see face to face. He says, now I know in part, Paul says, but then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. When you experience trauma, not if you experience trauma, but when you experience trauma, see it not as an opportunity to question God or to put him on trial, but see it as an opportunity to lean into his lordship as a God who has not abandoned us in our suffering, but who suffers with us and who has saved and will save and is saving us from our suffering. May God bless the hearing and reading of his word. Amen.